Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikulskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm chatting with Lou Raguse, who is out with a brand new book. This is called Vanished in Vermilion, the real story of South Dakota's most infamous cold case. It is available everywhere from the good folks at Post Hill Press. And Lou, this story is something that I think a lot of people in our little neck of the woods knew about, the disappearance and... uh, reappearance of the bodies of Cheryl Miller and Pam Jackson. It began in Vermilion in the early 70s. Tell me a little bit about the case before we deci- before we discuss how this came onto your journalistic radar. Okay, so for the longest time, it was just a cold case, missing persons case. It wasn't treated as necessarily a murder case. And then in 1991, which would have been the 20th anniversary of Pam and Sherry Jackson disappearing on their way to an end-of-the-year keg party out in uh, in the rural area north of Vermilion, um, there was an article that came out in the Vermilion Plain Talk newspaper, and then it was republished in South Dakota Magazine that kind of rekindled interest in the case. Again, just as a missing persons case, but it rekindled the interest of law enforcement, who at that point started to treat it as a potential homicide. You've got these two girls, high school juniors, going to a keg party, and they just disappear, I mean, literally vanish from the face of the earth. What was the Vermilion Police Department, the Clay County Sheriff's Department, response at the time? Well, back then, you have to remember that law enforcement worked a lot differently, and it was a lot more territorial. The parents of Pam Jackson and Sherry Miller reported it to the Clay County Sheriff. His name was Arnie Nelson. And, you know, not knowing exactly where they disappeared... Just, I think, the simple fact that it was reported to his office, it kind of became his case. And so Vermilion's police chief at the time was Merle Offerdahl. And even though uh, Sherry lived in town, uh, Pam lived out in the country, it became a a sheriff's department case. And at the time, uh, Sheriff Arnie Nelson treated it almost exclusively as a runaway, as in like, you know, telling the parents, go home, stop worrying, they'll be home soon. They just ran away. And that's really without any evidence that they that they would have run away. One of the things I thought was interesting, you've got these two girls missing in a, with the Studebaker that they were in, the 1960 Studebaker, which is so cliche. But I didn't realize how many hippie communes were around South Dakota at the time, and that became part of the story as well. Yeah, that a lot of this stuff was a learning experience for me. And I, it was primarily just because of the location of the university. And so out in the country, there were several old farmhouses that a bunch of hippies lived in. And I interviewed some of them and included in the book. And I talked, you know, off the record to some others as well. And they basically were your stereotypical hippies from the late 60s, early 70s, who would either grow a vegetable garden and try to sell vegetables to earn a little bit of money or paint houses and otherwise just kind of partied and and lived the peace life out in the country. So the, the part of the issue with the whole runaway idea is these girls didn't exactly have a, a leave-it-to-beaver home life, right? Well, you could say that Pam did, but the problem is they were stereotyped so bad. Sherry's home life was terrible, and so Sherry's uh, mother and father were divorced. Her father was very abusive when he was in the picture, and then her mother remarried and was an alcoholic, and so... Sherry came from what you would say is the stereotypical home that a teenager might want to escape from. Pam was a very kind of uh, uh, kind of a stereotypical farm family. They were very conservative. They were church going, 
And if anything, the perception would be that their home life was too strict and maybe something that she'd want to get away from from that standpoint. So the girls are missing, and, of course, in a small town, small county, you've got stories. Everybody kind of believes what they want. It seems like everybody was talking about it when you look back at it through a, with 2020 hindsight. But was this on the minds of a lot of Vermilion and Clay County residents throughout the years between 71 and 91? Yeah, and especially for her classmates, it was something that was like a reminder that came back up. One thing that's surprising is you, you understand how it would work today with social media if two girls disappeared, it would be the main thing that's being shared on social media. You would know about it all summer long. But this happened on Memorial Day weekend in 1971. And a lot of the classmates I talked to really didn't understand that they were gone until school started again in the fall. And then at that point, it's like, oh, geez, I guess they really hated it here and they wanted to run away. And then, you know, maybe by prom, they would be like, geez, they haven't come back yet. And then by graduation, it's like, oh, my gosh, they're not here yet. And so it was kind of this thing that Continued to remind them, and then, of course, at, at school reunions, uh, class reunions, the girls wouldn't be there. And it, it, it was something that they always thought about, but maybe in a different way than they would if it happened today. One of the things you point out in the book, and I got a chuckle out of it because I can see how this happens, these Facebook groups or whatever they're called, social media groups, the classmates would talk about it, and pretty soon their stories would all start sounding similar because their memories would be enhanced with other people's, and they would end up with a manufactured memory. How often did you see that when you were talking to classmates? Well, so I wrote the book over the course of almost five years. So um, I I worked for Kelloland News in Sioux Falls back in 2005 to 2008, and that's when I covered the cold case because it was in the news at the time. Well, then I I moved away and worked uh, as a news reporter in other markets, and so I was not in South Dakota when they were found. I moved back to Minnesota in 2015, and that's when I really started researching this as a book and kind of reinvestigating things. At that point is when I started contacting all the old classmates, and, you know, I did a bunch of preliminary interviews. I always record my interviews, and, you know, I was kind of getting, you know, asking about it for the first time, and it was, you know, them thinking about it for the first time in a while, and it kind of got fresh answers. Well, when I would circle back to certain people after a couple of years, they would insert themselves into a story that I had heard from another classmate. And it's one of those things where, you know, if somebody tells a story or hears a story long enough, they start to think that they were involved in it, even, you know, maybe unintentionally. I think that is what was happening. In the larger context of my book, I shared that anecdote because of the number of people with false and, frankly, loony memories who would come forward with information to the police during the cold case investigation that started in 2004. I'm chatting with Lou Raguse about his brand-new book, Vanished in Vermilion, the real story of South Dakota's most infamous cold case. It is available everywhere. Lou's up in Minnesota now, but he is a uh, very involved in this case. Take us forward to the early 2000s now, and the the farm, I think it's pronounced Licken, the David Licken farm. Who's David Licken, and how did he become involved? Well, back in uh, the early 90s, David Licken was charged with rape, and it was a, 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 a vicious rape of an ex-girlfriend, or somebody who had, he had just broken up with. He was in a relationship with her. She wanted to break up with him. He couldn't let go, and so he broke into her home and sexually assaulted her. And, um, and it was, uh, it was, a, a it, the details of it really shook law enforcement at the time. 
And as they investigated it, they started talking to ex-girlfriends of his or other women from his past and started noticing a pattern of behavior. And so in South Dakota, there you can enhance a sentence if there is a, 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 a if you're a habitual offender is the term that they use. Somebody who, who has known been known to do the same thing again and again. He had uh, earlier accusations in court back in the 80s. And then they had he, all these women who basically had the same type of story. So at his sentencing hearing in 1990 or 1991, there were five or six women that testified and just told stories that I, I've talked to people that were in the courtroom at the time. And they said it was like a, an afternoon in court that they would never forget because the stories were so disturbing. Anyway, David Licken, he gets put away for 225 years for this because of the habitual offender enhanced sentence. So he's at the South Dakota State Penitentiary. The main detective in Vermilion, Ray Hoffman, who investigated these rapes, he... Um, also went to Vermilion High School and is just a little bit younger than Pam and Sherry. And he notices that where David Licken grew up, the farmer he grew up uh, closer to Alcester, was only a couple miles from the gravel pit party that Pam and Sherry were trying to reach back in 1971. And David was the same age as them, so he was 16, almost 17 at the time that the girls disappeared. And so Ray Hoffman started to wonder, is it possible that Pam and Sherry accidentally drove up uh, a little too far past the gravel pits? Because everybody knows that's where they're, they were trying to go, but they didn't make it there. Maybe they accidentally drove onto the Licken farm, and maybe David Licken had something to do with their disappearance. And so Ray Hoffman, as a Vermilion police officer, wasn't able to fully pursue that theory in an investigative sense. But in 2004, the state of South Dakota opened up a cold case unit. The Attorney General's Office and the DCI, the Division of Criminal Investigation, got a small grant, and these grants were going all over the country because this was when DNA technology was really becoming more common, and they were able to solve cold cases using DNA. So this money was going around the country to for uh, departments to open up a cold case unit, and that's what they did in South Dakota. And so the DCI gathers some cold cases to try to figure out what they're going to put their energies into solving right away. And the disappearance of Pam Jackson and Sherry Miller was one of the two initial cases that they decided to pursue with the theory that David Licken had killed the girls. So geography really got him onto this with Licken. Who's living at the Licken farm at the time of this reinvestigation? His family still lived there. His mother lived in one house on the property and his brother Kerwin lived in another house on the property. Police show up, start digging. I mean, it's a lot more it's a lot more complicated than that. But they start they start digging around the farm, and they find things that it's like anything else in life. There's a lot of times innocent explanations for things that look like they're guilty. I mean, you, you get a novel and you see a gun, you know the gun's going to be used. If you see a gun in real life, the gun may never be used. Kind of the same thing happened with their search there, right? Yeah, and this is where the the book to me personally, being somebody who covered the cold case and followed it at the time, this is the part that to me was especially interesting because I remember at the time that Attorney General Larry Long told us that we found items of evidence. There's we found evidence on that search that points to that, you know, implicates David Lick. And they didn't charge him right after the search, but they talked about the search being successful. But the reality is they were looking for the Studebaker buried on the farm and they were looking for the remains of Pam and Sherry. They didn't find anything close to that. 
So when they found clothing in a red purse and other items such as that, you know, on the search warrant receipt that they file with the court that says what they took from the farm, all these items are listed there. Photographs, um, clothing, a red purse. You, you, you read that and you think, oh my gosh, they found clothing related to Pam and Sherry. Or they found photographs that prove that David had something to do with it. And so you start thinking that, that these things are related. In reality, they weren't. And in fact, the authorities knew that they weren't at the time. And that was part of a revelation that came in my writing of the book. Well, wasn't it something also bizarre as they found bones, but they were actually bones from a chicken coop that once existed? They were. They found bones uh, underneath the chicken coop. They knew that they were animal bones, and they, they wrote on the receipt that bones were found. When the press asked about it at the time, the authorities said, yeah, we're testing the bones. The results won't be back for a long time. In fact, the results came back within a couple of weeks, and they never shared the fact that they were not human bones. There was like a, a chicken bones, a woodchuck bone, and other animal bones like that. So some of these essentially lies by law enforcement can usually be innocuous, but they end up prosecuting Licken. How does that happen? The main thing that happened is that a jailhouse informant by the name of Aloysius Black Crow came forward with information that Licken had been talking about the crimes, and Black Crow told the authorities that he thought he could get Licken to confess. So they arrange for him to wear a recording device in the prison and go talk to Licken. But they did not have eyes on him, and they did not have surveillance cameras in the prison. So they basically they meet with him in a secret room, and then they send him on his way. He comes back an hour later, and they listen to the tapes, and there's a voice on the tapes talking about the crimes. They assume that it's David Licken. And they wanted it to be David Licken. They certainly did. And, you know, the, the one thing that we're kind of uh, passing over a little bit is that in between the farm search and the Aloysius Black Crow, they got a number of tips, a number of people that came forward with memories, memories of, of what happened, things that are very incriminating towards David Licken, a lot of memories of what happened back in 1971. They had no way to corroborate the information, but it all led them to believe that they were on the right track. Black Crow. Well, yeah, I mean they were taking they were taking testimony under or not testimony, but witness stories under hypnosis, right? Exactly, and and a witness would tell them one thing at first, but then after they put them under hypnosis, they would get a lot more details. And from their standpoint, they think, well, we're getting a lot more of the truth, but in fact, it was the opposite. And at the time, the science was pretty clear that I mean this was this was a load of crap. Yeah, but nevertheless, that wasn't always made clear to the judge signing these warrants, was it? Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it's, it definitely was a load of crap. Like if the trial had happened that day, the defense would be able to find experts that, that would be able to say, hey, this, this is well known. But to the public, that's a different story. So when the public hears that, that uh, David Licken's sister, for example, has memories of Pam and Sherry's bodies being on the farm, and those memories were helped by hypnosis, the public doesn't know how unreliable that is. And so there's kind of two things going on. There's, you know, the, the the investigation and information in the legal realm, and then there's in the public realm. And I think everybody around here knows how the story ended up with Licken. And the last about third of your book reads like a thriller, the way the Union County State's Attorney's Office and Jerry Miller, with help from the uh, with the special prosecutor on it, 
end up dealing with this and the defense attorneys as well for Licken because they kind of knew what was up the whole time, right? Yeah. So very early on, you know, they talk to their client. They go to the prison and they talk to David Licken. So as soon as the defense received the tapes, this, the so-called confession tapes from prison, they listen to the voice and they say, this is not David Licken. And so their wheels start spinning. They don't know whether the other side knows that it's not David Licken. They're a little bit paranoid because they don't know if the prosecution doesn't care and is trying to railroad him. But all they know is in order to make this case go away or to earn an acquittal, they need to figure out who that voice really is. So the defense begins their own investigation behind the scenes in secret, trying to figure out who at the prison was the person behind that voice. And before long, they figure out who it is, and then they begin to form their plan on how to make sure that David Licken doesn't get convicted of a crime that never even happened. Because essentially, that's the crazy thing. You know, when I talk to people about this book, you know, in your area, everybody kind of knows how it ends, and it still is very interesting, even if you know how it ends. But imagine if you had no idea what happened to Pam and Sherry and you're reading through this thing. I, 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 I try to stay away from the, the spoilers when I talk to people like that. However, and that, if I were to give one spoiler, I would say this is the only case I've ever covered where somebody is charged with a murder that never even happened. Well, that's that's the crazy part about it. And, you know, the scene where the, the defense lawyers are at the prison and then the state's attorney getting involved. What I thought was interesting, though, is the fact that I, I think the state's attorney did well here because he didn't buy the story from law enforcement and give law enforcement all the deferences the prosecutors usually do. Usually you just believe whatever a cop tells you or a state investigator. Here there was the, the state attorney did his job and did its own investigation and, and realized that was he I mean if there's a hero out of this story, I think the, the Union County state's attorney in that prosecution is certainly one. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Jerry Miller and, and Rod Oswald, who was the special prosecutor from the Attorney General's office. So they, they weren't involved in the farm search. Uh, they weren't involved in basically the first four years of the case, of the criminal case. So they came in in 2007, and, um, and at that point, to them, their whole lives, they've trusted what police bring them. You know, like, this is the evidence we gathered. Now it's your job to prosecute it and make sure the guy goes away to prison. Well, when things started to not make sense to them, they did do some diligence to check it out. And when they figured out that the voice on the tape was wrong, they did drop the case. And I've talked a lot, especially with Rod Oswald, uh, since since I began working on this. And, I mean, it troubles him to this day to the point that he can't sleep at night sometimes because of him charging an innocent man with a crime that he didn't commit. Of course, David Licken was guilty of other crimes, and that's maybe part of the problem that some people thought uh you know, who cares if this guy didn't do it because he's already in prison and, you know, already did terrible things. So what's it matter if he's wrongly accused? But people that have a true sense of justice, and I believe Rod Oswald does, thought that that was completely wrong and he's troubled by what he took part in. From a defense attorney point of view, when you interviewed the defense here, do you think there was a certain at least one saving grace for them was that their client was already in prison and wasn't going anywhere for several years. So it's not like they had locked up an innocent man. I mean, he's he's in prison for other things. And so they had the luxury of time that they could actually do this. This isn't some little 
uh, chintzy investigation they could do. They had the luxury of time on their side, right? They did. Um, and that's Mike Butler, who is one of the best uh, defense attorneys in South Dakota history. And it, it is remarkable the amount of work that him and uh, Clint Sargent and, and their assistants were able to, to accomplish as such a small team against this huge machine, which is the state of South Dakota, DCI. Um, they, they had the advantage that David Licken was in prison. However, in the book, they do a lot of, you know, trying to show you, like, this could have been anyone. If the state decides that somebody is guilty and they're going to get them, it's extremely hard to stop. And it was difficult even for the best defense attorney in the state to bring an end to this. Well, believe it or not, we've only scratched the surface of this story. It's like I say, it reads like a nonfiction. Well, it is a nonfiction thriller, and the way it's written is so uh, easily understood, and it's not some complicated case that, uh, and to the extent it was, you certainly made it uncomplicated. I want to give you a chance to say hi to your family in the area. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, uh, and I'm very happy that my family was uh, willing to share me with all the families involved in this case. I had a lot of participation and spent a lot of time back in South Dakota again. Uh, I love the community there, and I hope everybody enjoys this book. All right. He's uh, Lou Raguse. The book is Vanished in Vermilion, the real story of South Dakota's most infamous cold case. It's a fantastic read. It took me about three hours one night just to get through it because I could not put it down. David, uh, David Lickham's story is just amazing. And Lou, I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Oh, baby, baby, it's a while.